0: First, what has always been amazing about uh, Stanley, that he is truly a clarinet player. That is what he does. Hi, I'm Sean Perrin,
1: and you're listening to the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists looking for in-depth, career-accelerating conversations about all that's neat and new for the clarinet. You can subscribe to the show and learn more at clarinet.com. On today's show, Jerome Bunky returns for the second time to the program to discuss Stanley Drucker's heritage collection, Discs 8 and 9, for which he is the producer. We also discussed the state of music post-COVID and why it's so important to get back to concerts, not just as musicians, but also as audiences, and some of his own upcoming CD and performance projects. Don't forget that as a Clarinet listener, you can get a signed copy of the Heritage Collection, Disc 8 and 9, at digitalforce.com by using code CLARINET89 with your purchase. That's code CLARINET and the numbers 89, all one word, with your purchase. Thank you so much to our season sponsors and those supporting the show directly at clarinet.com join for making today's show possible. And thank you, of course, to you for listening. The new Bakun Q-Series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARINET at bacoonmusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bacoon Q series or Protege clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at bacoonmusical.com and use code CLARINET at checkout. Imagine a reed that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Leger reeds, the world's leading synthetic reed brand made right here in Canada. The European cut reed is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Crotiger Freddie, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with a great ease of articulation and is now available for E flat, B flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store, or you can now save 10% on your Legere reeds with code CLARINET at checkout at Legere.com. That's L E G E R E.com. So I'm here in the podcast today with Jerome Bunke, who is a seasoned veteran of the podcast here, having been on before way back in 2017. Jerry, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you, Sean.
1: You know, before we get started, I do just want to say that some listeners will start noticing that I'm now finally starting to get back into some of the uh, original guests that were on the program. I, I remember back in the day, like 2016, 2017, saying a lot of, hey, we'll have to chat again in the future sometime. But The future went by so quickly, and here we are five years later. And uh, so it's really great to have Jerry back on. And just before this episode, um, you will have heard from Stanley Drucker again. And I've actually got some other guests lined up, like uh, Evan Zaporin. Strangely enough, these people are all from New York, (laughs) lined up to talk to me again here on the program. But it's not just thanks to these great guests to come back but also the fact that they talked to me the first time. And thank you to you as well, the listener, for having been here the last five years, because without you, the show really wouldn't have gotten to this point. And to be able to continue talking to these great guests and having these great conversations. So thanks not only to the guests, but also to the listeners for making, you know, this kind of revisit possible. So, Jerry, it's been five years, and I think the last time I saw you was down at, uh, in person, at clarinet fest in in 2017 so um maybe let's do a quick sort of update in your life what's been going on and and we'll get into sort of how you've been dealing with the whole <laughs> covid situation if that's if that's okay as well musically and and otherwise as well so how have you been
0: well uh luckily we've been fine uh and uh what has what, ha- what has happened is, is that uh a lot of projects that uh, had been dormant have, have, have come back that i was involved with uh one personally is is one where I'm a, a, a appearing on a soon to be released CD, which is uh, duet albums by uh, the, the violinist James Grassick. and uh, I'm pleased that I'm I'm there. Probably one of the it's a whole album that has a lot of violin, cello, violin and piano, violin and and viola, and uh, and and I'm the soul woodwind, so I'm sort of like the sorbet in the middle of all the string playing. So. Uh, <laughs> I like that. So I'm looking forward to that coming out. And, uh, and we've also been, uh, forging ahead with, uh, being able to work very, very closely with a lot of, uh, Stanley Drucker's archive material and, uh, have actually come out with, um, two volumes in this heritage collection. Uh, one is, uh, entitled from the vaults, which is, uh, volumes, uh, heritage collection, six and seven. And just recently, uh another volumes eight and nine which are called hidden gems. So uh, we're really you know pleased that that uh, projects have continued and grown and uh, have really helped to try to get into one place a lot of uh, of, of Stanley's uh, recorded repertoire and live concerts to, to really add to his legacy.
1: So last time we were chatting, one of the things that struck me um, was we were talking a bit about how visual art, You know, it exists sort of for eternity, like on any day of the week, you can open up a picture of your favorite painting and enjoy it or go see the museum or whatever. But music, you were talking about how it's a bit of a a snapshot in time. And so I think that all of us listening can remember the last two years, how how there was no live music anymore. So these snapshots weren't really happening. And all we had was the recorded music. I just want to kind of your thoughts on that, like philosophically a bit. I mean, do you think, how do you think this loss is going to affect music going forward?
0: Well, I think one of the um, things that I rue the most about Sean really has to do with the effect of music education. Yeah. Uh, in other words, um, if I, if I played guitar and you got together, you know, uh, with, with a couple of people or visited uh, somebody's house or was a guest at a party, you know, you, you could play music. I, I find, uh, as a clarinetist, um, Gee, there're the Stravinsky pieces. Uh, you know, maybe the solo movement from Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time, but you need a harmonic base to get involved. So, in that way, I, I feel that not having the the comradeship of having other musicians around uh, is, is something which uh, I, I think is, is going to be uh, something hard to overcome, especially when you think about formative years. Uh, you know, when did uh, when did you start playing clarinet?
1: I started at 12. And it's really interesting you say that because um, the formative years and the social element is so important because I hated music the first year, but my mom had paid for it and she made me continue. And by June, uh, she told me, okay, let's give that clarinet back. I mean, we're not going to do this anymore. And I said, no, no, I really want to continue. Like by that point, we'd done a tour and, uh, and all that. And she said, well, I mean, if you're going to do it, you have to really be into it. And I think that's maybe why I'm so kind of into it now is I, I felt this need to show that I (laughs) cared at that point, you know, but um, if it hadn't been for the tours and the friends and the people I met and the things that I saw and the music I got to play and experience in a group setting, I don't think I would have continued. And locally, there's, I heard some really sad news that a lot of band programs have shut down. A lot of band programs at the grade nine level are running at like the grade seven level with a quarter capacity that they had two years ago. Like, it's just, it's crazy.
0: That was sort of the thing. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York and we had uh, a very set up feeder program. I mean, we started with, uh, with with song flutes or tonettes maybe in second or third grade. And by the time we were in fourth grade, that's when, you know, band programs started. And and yes, you're right. At the, and the other thing too, which uh, especially um, is prevalent in probably, I, I know the, the States, I'm not quite sure whether or not the Canadian system is uh, that well too, but in so many school districts, the music program really is part and parcel of, of the football game, of having the marching band, and then and, and having the, you know, that, you know, a school budget could be cut, but the marching band uniforms for the football game still are there, they're still are intact. We don't have
1: that as much up here, but I see what you mean. It's just part of so, uh, almost like not civic pride, but school
0: pride, you know? Well, it becomes a civic pride because you have areas that are spread out, and in my opinion, this is what socializes the whole community. It's the boosters. It, it's the, the, you know, the, the Friday night, uh, you know, you know, games, games, uh, the Saturday games of, of how every aspect of the community participates to make that game a big happening. And that's where everybody gets a lot of their social interaction and music serves that social function. And if there's a change in the social function, will there be a change in the
1: music? That's so true. And, you know, it's for the musicians, too. I mean, me, just like you, I'm not fulfilled. Maybe it's a bad thing as a clarinet player or something, but I'm not fulfilled. I found out just by sitting in a room practicing by myself for two years. I there's something about going to an orchestra concert and experiencing the music as a performer that drives me more than just sitting in my practice room, refining my scales, you know. Um, And I think that a younger student who's never had that previous performance experience would not understand why we're sitting there, (laughs) you know? Um, It seems like a very, like a drudgery almost, you know? And you talked about this. It's ironic um, to look back at our conversation because it was a little bit telling of the future, but you also talked about this social need for music. And I think at the time you meant more the social need for music composition, but now we're kind of talking about the social need for music itself (laughs) and the interaction. But I think that it all kind of sort of plays together. There's two types of people, though people who I, th- I think and it both are okay, but some who kind of shut down over this period and, and had to focus maybe inwardly on just staying sane, but others seem to have really had a creative explosion. So do you think there's going to be like a post-COVID artistic revival or are we going to have a bit of a lull?
0: Well, I also think it, it's going to depend upon at what, at what levels. And I think the when I talk about uh, the education, I think that not having the exposure is going to be is going to be detrimental.
1: It could be detrimental to audiences, too, in the future.
0: Yeah. But in in other words, the you know, where is the going to be the exposure that society has to being able to to listen to things? And, you know, is so much of it going to be just what um, people uh, what listen to in, in compressed formats? you know, rather than seeing the athleticism that that performers have, that dancers have. And, and how the music and dance, for example, and music and singing, you know, how they all intertwine and, and go, go together.
1: Well, we often experience people saying too things like, oh, you know, it was the, the year of no concerts or the two years, I guess, of no concerts, but they, they talk about it almost as if like, it's just a loss of some sound that we missed, but they forget about the experience, I think. And the the social cohesion, like you're saying, that comes from that experience, you know, it was a lot more than just sound lost in a room.
0: Right. Well, even even now, for example, I know there was something and and even you'll find this in TV documentaries, you know, where, gee, it's the, you know, 50th anniversary of Woodstock or 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 even, uh, you know, the you know, there'll be uh, programs about, you know, Beatles, you know, their recording sessions or something like that. Um, similar and you know, where is that shared group experience that basically, you know, unite people. Uh, I, I remember being in uh, a place uh, called Jerome, Arizona, somewhere between, you know, Phoenix and Flagstaff and uh, it was an old copper mine and very, very high and uh, known, known for having sort of a very artistic community and, and uh, one where one could easily expect to see VW buses, and, and, and almost like, like a Woodstock type of atmosphere. So even something like that didn't only stay in Woodstock, New York, but became synonymous with what it is to have you know, an RD culture, or an RD community.
1: Well, and even though concerts did technically happen, I mean, even I streamed some concerts online, I definitely did not find it to be even close to as memorable or enjoyable as being there in person. I don't think there's going to be a 50th anniversary celebration of some streaming event that happened, (laughs) you know, Um, and it's, uh, it's I would watch them, too. And sometimes I would start watching something and then get distracted by, you know, God knows what around my house, a baby crying, lunch has to get made or the phone rings. I mean, that doesn't happen at a concert. You're there, you're with real people experiencing something real together in a room. So I, I do hope we can move back to it. And I'm so happy to see that uh, you're coming out of this kind of, you know, guns blazing with a blazing with a concert and an album and... Uh... All,
0: all, all of that stuff. And I, I think that also is the same way about shared experiences. Sean, if you look at it also from a sporting event, you know, how many people, gee, I was there when when when, when so, you know, made that last basket or, or what you get about the group enthusiasm.
1: Totally. Yeah, there's more of a sport element to music, I think, than many realized or, or wanted to admit before all this. You know, that's an interesting kind of uh, relationship.
0: Yeah, well, at one point in, in, in my career, I was the uh, orchestra manager for the Martha Graham Dance Company. And I remember that we went to I think the Coast Guard Academy in Connecticut, and, and did some concerts and not concerts, but you know, ballets, uh, and the dance programs. And they also had some of the cadets Take some of their warm-ups in their dance classes, and they did not cut it. In other words, they had really not realized the amount of endurance and athleticism that went into dance programs, as, as contrasted to their calisthenics. You know,
1: it's interesting too. I mean, I remember I used to be in the marching bands myself. We don't have a lot of them up here, but Calgary has one of the the best ones, um, or the most famous ones, I guess, in, in Canada, and. Uh... It was, I was playing drums in that, actually. So it was quite a workout standing there with that 20, 30-pound drum all day and running around and we did field shows and like the drums are quite intensive to play themselves. And uh, it was exhausting and it was very much in shape and so was everybody else. And, but people would make fun of it like they're playing football and they think you're some loser in marching band. It's like, you try a 12-hour day <laughs> in, <laughs> in the marching band playing and memorizing music and running around and, and staying hydrated and being in the sun. And like it's a lot of work.
0: But, but think of this now. You also have a, have another double, mm-hmm. yeah. That you play so clarinet and percussion.
1: Absolutely, yeah. A lot of people played clarinet in the marching band, but I was like, I want to be louder. I want to <laughs> I want <laughs> to cut through a little more. <laughs> so so we're talking about all these live concerts, and this is a great segue into uh, when I was talking with Stanley about the Heritage Collection. I I sort of was considering you know we've got now nine discs of live recordings from you know his career spanning concerts all over the place really within new york other other cities other venues all over the place but the music too all over the place different different time periods but also different like periods in his life too you know so but i was thinking about all the music that he's played and something like ten thousand some odd concerts with the new york phil alone and all the other ones i did the math and i told him this and he laughed but um i think he's been playing clarinet live in concert for like more than a thousand days in his lifetime um consecutively so my realization with the Heritage Collection is that this is an incredible output of live recordings. A lot of them one take. This wasn't studio kind of live recordings, <laughs> but there's just so much more even like, so my question to start this off is like, we've got nine amazing CDs of, inc- of incredible live performances from all over the place. How many more could there be and how much of his output as a performer is sort of recorded that, you know, could someday be heard again? And, and how much do you think is is, of course, you know, lost to time and, and being a musical snapshot, as you say.
0: First, what has always been amazing about uh, Stanley and, and the, that he is truly a clarinet player, that is what he does. And a lot of the performances uh, that we, we've that we are that are represented in, in the Heritage Collection were done in addition to his responsibilities as clarinetist, as the principal clarinetist in the New York Philharmonic with a career that, um, you know, spanned more than 60 years and that's six zero. And what I also find is that the high level of uh, artistry, musicianship, technical prowess that was prevalent, it did not matter where the venue was, Sean. In other words, uh, his spontaneity and his passion would come through whether it was in a a school auditorium, whether uh, whether or not it was in a, a library, uh, some something down the road, or uh, the things that I'm uh, very proud of being able to include in in, uh, in in the first five disc set were his performances at the Library of Congress with the Juilliard String Quartet, and at and at that time the Juilliard String Quartet was, you know, the an uh, initial very much Group that that spawned uh, the chamber music revival and uh, really uh, were exemplary as far as what they brought artistically and, and, and as far as uh, really helping to um, solidify chamber music, you know, in in our consciousness. And uh, Stanley's performance of the Brahms and the Mozart quintet with, with them uh, is just absolutely phenomenal. And as you said, a lot of these things were, you know, they're all one takes, you know, uh, and, uh, and also in, six and, in this six and seven, there is also a performance of the Bartok contrasts. And this piece in particular is one of the, I think, engineering marvels uh, that could be experienced. The engineer uh, was Peter Bartok, the composer's son this was recorded around 1954 1955. And it was done with a single mic, one mic, so with one microphone, uh, it's just a phenomenal performance with uh, amazing intensity and the clarinet cadenza at the end of the first movement uh, can leave one sort of uh, tongue-tied.
1: So I guess that's what struck me about the nine discs, though, is that to someone who's just approaching this set of CDs for the first time, it could be like, okay, we've we've had these recordings, we're sitting on them for a while, and and suddenly we're going to release these these live concerts. But I believe that you're sifting through an awful lot of material and finding, you know, some of the best performances that are the most interesting. Um, you know, not just the piece, but also the the venue or the setting or the occasion or the performance itself. I mean, what is the process like then with someone who's played so much music, of you know, going through these old recordings and and looking for the ones that you'd like to include on the sets because as producer you're planning the, as we discussed last time, the, the, the track listing really for the CD and, and making a lot of those decisions.
0: Well, um, one is that none of this would be possible without Stanley and, uh, his wife's Naomi participation as far as making, uh, a lot of this material available as well as their input. And, uh, the other factor goes into really wanting this to be a broad repertoire and and uh and some of it is the we have to make sure that from a sound point of view that there's enough excellence that one can hear what's going on uh being uh, in the live performances yes uh sometimes there might be um you know a cough which only happens by the way coughs only happen in slow movements when it's very quiet. <laughs>
1: It's a law, right? Yeah, it, the it, rule it's rule of music. It,
0: it, it, yeah, in, in order to attend a, a concert, yes, you have to. you, know, you have to breathe You only know, you know, cough in, in, in during the quiet, slow movement. Uh, but um, that that is uh, it is a, a challenge. A lot of times, uh, there's also been a lot working, you know, in, in getting the the various permissions that are required. For example, uh, doing something with the Juilliard String Quartet. Uh, you know, probably took about more than six months of negotiation just to get to get that through because each member had the um, had the right to um, to agree to have it be, be issued.
1: This is an element a lot of people don't think about, and when I, even when I did my little project a few years ago now, um, I joked that. The, the the licensing of just two composers that I had on that album which was Philip Glass and Chick Corea, who's since unfortunately passed away but um that that alone was enough to make me want to write my own music next time I think because it was a lot of work and and I can't imagine especially on this CD a lot of these pieces are still quite contemporary and and I assume still covered by copyright and uh you know it's not like Brahms where you can just release it and it's okay. I mean, you have royalties to pay and licensing and probably permissions and all sorts of things, right?
0: Well, uh, this is where, uh, having, uh, cooperation of, uh, of, of the village and of the people who understand, uh, the importance of having this out for Stanley, uh, is important. And to be realistic about this, Sean, we're, we're not dealing with a Taylor Swift or, or Beyonce thing. You know, these are material that has been, uh, you know, some of it has not been available. Uh, and if it has been available, uh, it's uh, based on Stanley's uh, long span of career. There are things that are been out there. And I know in some instances, uh, the composers have wanted it to be out there. In the Bartok Contrast, for example, uh, that uh, performance I was talking about, that was engineered by Peter Bartok, which uh, featured uh, Robert Mann on violin and, and uh, Leonid Hambro on, on piano. Um, that that's one that was not really readily available on CD. You know, the fact that you know that we made it uh, readily available on CD was an important aspect for them. Well,
1: and it's interesting. So kind of to loop back to my original question, because I remember when we first chatted, there was disc one to five. And then I chatted with Stanley again after disc six and seven. Now there's disc eight and nine. So how many more are are planned if you can share for this, this collection or, because it seems like based on his recorded output, we could go on for a very long time. And also his performances are quite famously each quite unique. Yeah.
0: Well, this is one of the things in in his career where um, you would have pieces that really became landmarks musically, as well as for what it did for, for clarinet playing. Uh, you know, the Bartok contrasts uh, was, uh, you know, from, from the, the mid-1950s. Then in the uh, mid-1960s, you had uh, his Nielsen concerto uh, that was conducted with, with Bernstein. And uh, that also, by the way, was the Stanley Stanley did in one take. Um, the, uh, then about 10 years after that came the Coriolano concerto, which also set, again, new standards. So uh, I, I often teased Stanley, I said, gee, you know, uh, you know when, when, I, when I had to audition to get into uh, to, to Juilliard, you know, at one point maybe, you know, one would play, you know, Weber or, or, or a Mozart concerto and look what you've done now, you know, first you made <laughs> us play the Nielsen. Well, oh, gee, and after the Nielsen, you know, now, now it came to the Coriolano. You know, it's like it just isn't fair, you know.
1: It's kind of like how we can all blame the recital on. What was it? List, right? Who sort of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, n- I never thought about that. I wish i thought about that before when I was talking with Stanley, how he's it's so obvious. And I kind of asked it, I guess, in a roundabout way. But he's really shaped the clarinetist repertoire <laughs> that, like, s- students must learn now. Um, because a lot of these pieces, he is the epicenter of those, as you as you say, you know. One thing I did ask him, though, which I kind of wanted your thought on, too, was, you know, throughout his career, a lot of these pieces, as you say, like the, the those two we just discussed, but also on the CD here, um, the Berg, even like the Debussy, these are, when he was younger, these were not just contemporary pieces in the sense that we would consider them in our textbooks, like they were new pieces. How have these pieces aged to you, and do you think that, you know, there's pieces along the way that, that should have been included, but maybe people have forgot about that, that, uh, you know, back in the day, Stanley may have played, but have since sort of fallen out of favor or.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting that when you mentioned about the Debussy, because the, uh, you know, Stanley joined the Philharmonic in 1948. And Debussy for a lot of conservatory in you know uh, educational establishments, you know the contemporary programming, you know w- was really the impressionist. Debussy Ravel, you know w- would have been fulfilled on what it is to have a contemporary piece on 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 the program. Interestingly, on disc seven, we have Stanley's performance of the Debussy Rhapsody with the New York Philharmonic and Leonard Bernstein. This piece, by the way, is available, only available on CD as part of a 45-disc set with the New York Philharmonic. So to have it here is interesting because you don't have to buy the other 44 discs in order to hear hear the Debussy. The timing of the Debussy Rhapsody with Bernstein is about 7 minutes and 46 seconds. On Discs eight and nine, we have the WC Rhapsody with the piano. Again, a studio recording, Sean. And the timing happens to be the exact. No way. Yeah. <laughs> exact timing. Now, what is interesting is we have in discs one to five a live version of that, and it's a minute faster. And on, and on a seven-minute piece, or seven plus, one minute is a pretty big percentage. You know, it's like 15. So that shows either what happens in a live concert or, you know, maybe the pianist push things. But, you know, I, I think that shows the, the the variety. The other thing, too, is that Stanley, some of these things that we talk about is, is, is like hidden gems are part of the repertoire that's a little bit off the track. Uh, Michael Whalen, we, we have Mason. Um, so some pieces that uh, the marching you that maybe are, are not as, as as well known uh, and Stanley also did um, pieces you know besides we have the Baird uh, he also did the things by David Dofsky. he did he did things um well you know by Milton Babbitt so that his willingness to explore I think music of his day I think was also was also you know,
1: evidence well we're so fortunate for people like you know him and also yourself and and other players who have explored and been willing to explore these pieces or otherwise we probably would never have really discovered them but uh and you know his it's interesting the three versions um, of the debussy on this on these various cds in the set because it's just a testament to how he is not only performing them differently himself but but different arrangements of the same piece even. And his ability to keep it fresh all the time is so, so incredible. Um, It's something I I asked him about too is, you know, how did you continue to maintain that freshness? Because so many orchestral players, um, I think they get bored in time because they're playing a lot of the same repertoire um, year after year after year. I mean, here I know that the, the local orchestra plays the Nutcracker every year. I couldn't imagine doing that 60 times, right. <laughs> you know, 60 yeah. seasons. Well, not 60 times. Let's say it's, you know, 10 shows a time or 20 shows a time times 60 seasons or whatever. That would just be, be crazy. Some of these pieces, but he had this, he has this intense focus on making the music fresh and interesting with, with every single time, which is just amazing.
0: There, there's an awful lot of spontaneity in his performances and, uh, and his, and he approaches it, uh, which is why uh, a lot of his takes uh, end up being, you know, relatively the, the ones to use, so to, so to speak. But the other thing too, about as far as exploring things goes, is that um, in uh, Discs Eight and Nine, we also have a piece by Coriolano, The Soliloquy, and that's based on uh, John's second movement of, of the concerto. So there's a situation where the music has been available You know, for a smaller musical force, one that could be, you know, more readily included on people's concerts and recitals. So we're also, I mean, we're very happy to show and have that be part of the collection in order to show what, what, how it can be used and how it can be programmed.
1: One thing I've been noticing with the the world, and we were talking about this last time in 2018. It's only gotten even more pronounced, but uh, many people don't even use CDs anymore. So is there a plan or have these been released to to Spotify or any other kind of streaming platform at this time? Or is that not in the works?
0: There's been, uh, it may be in the works, but what it was an important part of this is that increasingly we find that the packaging of the CDs becomes very important. And especially in dealing with the nature of what is the foundation and or the the genesis, the basis of this heritage collection is to really have this as a permanent legacy of getting all of Stanley's material, as much of it as possible in one place. And that's also where in this last hidden gem, some of the some of the pieces are things that were available through European companies or independents. But it just so happens that I have a booklet that we have available you know, here, you know, so that we have something in the CDs where we have you know, about a 40-page booklet that has you know, pictures of Stanley from you know, up, up through, as well as essays in here. This we think is a big important part of you know issuing it this, this way. And also, um, one of the other aspects of this that we were hoping for, and I don't know whether or not with the pandemic, this has been one of the things which has affected it, Sean, has been as a teaching tool, not to necessarily copy it, but basically, if you want to hear things more than once, if you want to hear how somebody else does it if you want to be able to use it as what the possibilities of the instrument can do with one person. Not saying it's the only way to do it, but if you want to compare the way one person does it to another person and, and, and how it's done and how they're, it's it's like getting a different opinion on on something. Uh, the idea of having it where you can set it up that way on a CD rather than, than to stream you know, might, might be more, might be more helpful. You know, will it be that way? And, and are some things available on YouTube? The answer is yes. You know, but that, that was not the main goal. The main goal was not to do something just to exist that way, but to really, you know, get the best type of fidelity.
1: Well, I do. I, I think there's such a fine line between, you know, trying to navigate this current situation of, accelerating technology because one of the things that drives me nuts about streaming music is it's so focused on finding the next music or listening to music passively like I, I log into apple music and i want to just continue where i left off like i would have with a cd but it's always like here's what's new and release and, and here's when a workout playlist or whatever that's been updated and I, i'm just like i don't care where is <laughs> the, the where's the thing i'm trying to deeply get into here whether it's an album or a piece or, or something, it always seems to lose track of where I was and, and push the next thing. And uh, it dawned on me that perhaps instead of being designed poorly, that's actually how most people listen to music. And I found that shocking hmm. because I don't want to just listen to everything for the first time all day long, passively in the background while I do other tasks. Like to me, the listening itself is one of the purposes of of listening, which sounds crazy to say to a musician maybe, but maybe not to a non-musician. So I, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at here is that it sounds like the intent here is is more to assemble the, the archival um, discs and, and hope that those who would benefit most from them are going to have that same astute kind of listening mentality and come across it, right?
0: Well, I think what we, our goal is to start off at the you know, highest possible level. Then once we do that, then we could then take the material and work it different ways, if if need be, and 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 if the demand is there. I love it. So, did
1: I hear correctly that Stanley is not performing at this Clarnet Fest, right? But he was supposed to in twenty twenty. Is that what had happened before it got canceled, or or is he performing this year?
0: The what I'm aware of is um, something which I I think I had. Mentioned, and certainly we did include it in the, in the new volume eight and nine, in February of 2020, Stanley actually appeared in a program of the New York Philharmonic, which means that that was the 72nd year of being associated with the orchestra. I believe that in, uh, as, as far as the clarinet fest, I believe he was scheduled to play maybe at this point three years ago two or three years ago but then then the first one in uh, Reno Lake Tahoe was canceled then the one after that I think was was going to be in Texas and that one did not take place and um, so Stanley is not going to be at this year's which again is scheduled back uh, for Reno and Lake Tahoe but the following year is in Denver and maybe by that by that time things are fine and um, we also have to keep in mind that Stanley is now a very robust and and, and with a 93 year old uh, person, so uh, he's, it's just phenomenal what uh, you know that that he how he still keeps keeps going like the Ener- Energizer Bunny, you know. And, uh,
1: Absolutely. That's one of the things that amazes me about him, too, is just the amount of time he's been doing it. And he still is so, um, you know, capable and, and uh, there with you and, and, you know, very much interested in, in still playing. And uh, I asked him, about you know, when he might actually consider retiring and, and also what he might have done if he had not chosen clarinet to do as a living. And he basically couldn't really I don't think he could really fathom either question <laughs> which is uh, also very telling i mean a lot of people myself included i think imagine retirement to look like sitting on a beach and <laughs> you know i don't
0: know maybe, maybe maybe for stanley you know his idea of retirement will be just to schedule john cage's four minutes and 33 seconds of silence <laughs> you know or something that way yeah. but no but, but stanley you know we'll we'll have our conversations and he'll still complain about reads and and and, and getting the rush you know to just you know, just write, you know, so he can use use Rush to try to uh, file down uh, some some spots on his read. So uh.
1: That's remarkable to me. And, you know, the other person who I had a similar conversation with, I think Eddie Daniels, 80th birthday. Uh, I talked to him on the podcast as well. And um, he said something similar. Like I put in my 10,000 hours and for the next 10,000 hours, I'm, gonna, I'm like, man, you're still practicing, <laughs> you know, four or five, six hours a day. And there's no sign of it letting up ever. So you better get ready for the next generation of Eddie Daniels. and
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know. absolutely. You know, when you were talking about uh, your, your, your bit per- percussion and everything else like that, I know that uh, was I, is my memory correct that, that, that on your album, you, you did some extra work too.
1: Yeah. Locally, uh, especially for a few years before I started focusing on other things and, and hurt myself, but I was doing a lot of percussion doubling uh, with local groups and things. I do play, a fair bit of percussion or i did play a fair bit of percussion um but yeah i played marimba on two of the tracks on the cd
0: right i I, i wanted to make that i wanted to make that connection on, on your album which is which is a fantastic fine fine presentation oh thank you
1: yeah i know even live it was fun because we would actually switch like i would put the clarinet down and go play those ones and, and come back and <laughs> keep playing and uh there was a little bit of an improv element to those pieces, especially live as well. So it was kind of neat to to get to, to do that and uh, and use the skills that way. And, and uh, you know, it's one of the things, too, as far as sharing music. I mean, that one CD project, sure, it was only that one project, but, I mean, I must have played those pieces for schools at the university I teach at, the conservatory there, dozens and dozens of times for a lot of kids. And so the impact that this kind of CD project can have is really quite lasting. Um, not to mention one like the, even the Heritage Collection here, was, you're mentioning how it's going to influence recitals. And and so for, for anyone listening, I mean, these sort of legacy projects, um, I think they're really important. So if you can put something down into a CD, I think you should do that and and, and focus your energy into that. I and mean, it's interesting because, you know, Stanley here, we now have nine CDs of, of performances, which is an incredible output for any person, but how many more <laughs> are there, you know?
0: Well, they, uh, they, they, they they do exist. And, and yes, there are, there are plans. So uh, we, we, we look forward to that. And uh, tell, for you and your listeners, we will keep you informed. Beau.
1: Absolutely. And speaking of the listeners, I'm going to add something after this is recorded, so I make sure to get it 100% accurate. But there will be a way for Clarinet listeners to purchase a signed copy of uh, this disc set. And uh, of course, don't forget about the previous seven CDs that go with this collection. Um, I think that if you have not yet experienced them or or purchased them or added them to your collection, um, it's got to be one of those things that as a clarinet player, you're really going to have to consider purchasing. As they say, the history of the orchestra is in Stanley Drucker, but also actually the history of the clarinet at this point is really, really there as well. And this is all, you know, thanks to the efforts of um, especially, you know, Jerry here for putting this together. And and I want to thank him so much for, for doing that for the community.
0: You're you're very gracious and I'm uh, I'm obviously uh hum, hum, humbled by that uh, by by your comments and uh, the other thing too which uh is also interesting is that by being able to assemble these in one place it really um, also makes it a good value. You know the fact that in in one in one album you know you can get the Bartok contrast, the Nielsen concerto, the Debussy rhapsody, the Coriolano concerto You know, all in one place is is something that, uh, you know, makes it, uh, we think, not only value, great value musically, but also also one from, uh, you know, from from being able to uh, to get a good value for for that purchase.
1: Absolutely. So I now have a section of the show, which I can't remember we had if we had before, um, but called the lightning round. So we'll skip to that in a second maybe we did do that last time. But uh, before I do that, I I wanted to ask, is there anything else you'd like to share with the clarinete audience or anything you wanted to ask me?
0: Well, in some of your questions, how do you feel that during these times that the clarinete, you know, how helpful you've been, you know, for adding to the sense of community? Uh, Have you had some feedback from that?
1: It's funny you say that because um, throughout the years, I, I have gotten a lot of Uh, you know, messages from people and sometimes from surprising people from all over the world who I just didn't know really are listening. So I've been asked before, like, what is the niche audience of the the podcast, especially by advertisers and things? And I'm like, you know, I I wish there was a (laughs) specific type of clarinetist, but it seems to be a lot of clarinetists at a lot of different age groups and a lot of different levels and countries. And like the show has reached over 90 countries around the world and over a half million downloads now, like it's really made an impact. And I guess the weird thing to me is that it just feels kind of like sitting in my office talking to people. <laughs> so, so it's odd in a way that it's, it's, uh, these conversations I have that to me in my head are just kind of like phone calls that I can recall in that way, but to people listening all over the world, like they're, they're making an impact and people are learning. And I, I think they're getting, which was the point of the podcast originally, kind of an insight into the lives of these clarinet players that otherwise we may not have had. So I, I do hope that that kind of leaves a bit of a unique legacy in the clarinet, uh, world that maybe a lot of other instruments are starting to have, but you know, this is now, I think the sixth or seventh year of this program. So it's, uh, there's quite a, you know, catalog, I guess, or collection of, of episodes to look back on now and, and really sort of reflect on. But I have heard a lot about people really enjoying it all over the place. And, uh, you know, one girl I remember at clarinet fest, 2017, actually, um, you know, we were there together and, and people were coming up asking me for pictures. And at first I thought they were joking, but I realized they were serious. And I was like, man, these so pe- there's so many people listening that, that seeing me is kind of like a, a treat of the festival. And I had this one young girl come up and, and want a picture. And she said that her family came there specifically to try and come and find and meet me. And that they, they often listen to the podcast while they do gardening together and they listen to it the whole way down. And I was like, man, this is just, to me, it's crazy. Like, uh, like I said, it feels just like having conversations with people who have become acquaintances and friends. But I mean, there is a wider impact, which uh, I think is harder for me to see, but it's definitely out there.
0: Well, it uh, it's it certainly all been positive. And uh, in in just, you know, hearing about you know, some, some of the conversation we've had, it, in a way, turning back to Stanley, it's sort of uh, interesting about fostering things that way. Because one of the pieces on the uh, Disc nine is, is by Roussakis, which he played at one of the um, clarinet fests, by the way. And, and this piece is, is um, the, the composer, was actually a person who started the American Composers Orchestra, somebody who did a, uh, actually started a library where for contemporary composers they could have fac- facsimile editions done that they would help distribute. So he was somebody very, very involved in contemporary music. And then another piece on the album is, uh, McAllister's black dog, which was written now, this was about maybe about 20 years ago. And as far as being also the instrumentation is, is interesting because for Stanley, it was done with a symphonic band that was written for. So it definitely is, you know, interesting how he is also, you know, also wanted to be very, very much at the leading edge and, uh, on, on the album, nothing could come after that. I love it. So thank you so much,
1: Jerry, for coming on the show today. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other free platform, the show will end here. But for those who are supporting the production of the show, thank you so much. And we will see you in a few moments in the lightning round. If you'd like to also support the production of the podcast, you can do this at clarinet.com slash join. Thank you so much, Jerry, for coming on the show today.
0: Always a pleasure to be with you, Show, And thank you.
1: The new Bakun Q-Series Clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series Clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARINET at BakunMusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé Clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at BakunMusical.com and use code CLARINET at checkout. Imagine a reed that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reeds, the world's leading synthetic reed brand made right here in Canada. The European cut reed is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Chrono Freddie, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with a great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store, or you can now save 10% on your Legere reads with code CLARENET at checkout at Legere.com. That's L E G E
0: R E.com.